the, the idea of being part of a kingdom is foreign to us. We do not live in a government that was established as a, as a kingdom. We, we don't have that. That's not how we work. That's not how we function. That's not how we interact. We don't even have a monarchy that resembles that of, of Great Britain. Uh, we uh, look different. Our nation functions differently. So when we're having conversations from the Gospel of Matthew about what it means to be part of a kingdom, we have to take a couple of steps and we have to understand what's being said. But what we cannot miss is all of these phrases in the Lord's Prayer are intertwined with one another. They do not exist in and of themselves. They work together and God has a purpose and a function as those things work together. Uh, one theologian says this, The Lord's Prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and in between, in six brief petitions, everything important in life. God is talking to us and God is communicating something to us in this prayer that we are so familiar with and that we've spent the last few weeks familiarizing ourselves even, ourselves even more with to understand what it means for us to be people who know that our God is not simply someone who ran for an office. Our God is the king of the universe. And that when we as believers utter that we believe that Jesus is king, that is in the same sense of us saying that we believe that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is the king of all that there is. If you have your Bibles, why don't you open those to Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to read it to you from the CSB, and then we'll look at it again from the King James Version, since that's the one that's the most familiar to everyone. But in Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 9, Therefore Jesus said, You should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, Your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus says this to those who are coming closer and closer to him and explaining to them how to pray. And as he shares with us how to pray, he talks about the kingdom. Well, if we're going to have a conversation about the kingdom... We have to figure out what it is that God is actually telling us. So the central idea of today's message is basically this. That God's reign is right now. That God reigns right now in this very moment. And because the, when we look at that, that might be a little confusing to you. Because when we look around our world, it does not seem as if God is reigning. We see travesty and darkness and, and ugliness all around us. There are ways that people are functioning in what seem to be contradiction to the God that we meet in Scripture. What does it mean for God to reign right now? And how can I understand this? Well, if I'm going to break it down for us, the kingdom of God is where God reigns. So if we want to understand where His kingdom is, that is where God reigns. And we believe that God is what we call omnipresent or that God is everywhere. So even right now, in this very moment, the kingdom of God is everywhere. That there is an alignment that we have to see that in a broken, fallen world, God is moving a direction and He's calling for us as people who come alongside of Him to align ourselves with Him so that our lives are moving in unison with the way that He has designed for the world to be. 
The King James Version says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word kingdom's a, a tad bit loaded, and we're not even sure how we got here. But if we're going to really understand what that world word means, it simply means the reign of the king. So we as followers of Jesus, and that's who makes up lots of this room each Sunday. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're really glad you're here. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are aligned. We are aligning ourselves with the reign of the king. What has scripture shown us? What has scripture declared to us? What has scripture provided for us in regard to that kingdom and to that king? One definition of the kingdom of God that I I thought was really helpful was this. The kingdom of God is where God's will is enacted in every sphere of life. Spiritually, emotionally, politically, economically, socially, vocationally. They even had an etc. in there in case one of those words did not cover everything. The kingdom of God is where God's will is enacted in every sphere of life. So if that's what the kingdom of God is, where do we see it? In the whole of the Bible. Is there a narrative, a a meta-narrative that helps us to see the king running through Scripture? I'm glad that you asked, because there is. So if we're going to take this idea of God's reign, which is right now, and we're going to understand it in four key ways, we can look into the Scripture and we can see it like this. One, the kingdom is introduced. Two, the kingdom is announced. Three, the kingdom is declared. And four, the kingdom is fulfilled. That is not an alliteration. I'm not sure what you call it when all of the words end with the same letter. But that's what we have. Introduced, announced, declared, and fulfilled. So where do we see the kingdom of God introduced in Scripture? Does it show up when we get to the Gospel of Matthew and we see this Lord's Prayer? Does it show up before that? Where do we find the kingdom of God and that God would be the king who reigns and rules forevermore in the Bible? When you get in Genesis chapter, in, in the book of Genesis and in the book of Exodus, you see the notion of God as the various things that we got to see last week. The redeemer, the provider, the one who delivers us, the one who sanctifies and protects us. As you work through the text, you will eventually get to Exodus chapter 15. And after God has delivered the nation of Israel from Egyptian captivity, these are the words that Moses uses as he interacts with the Lord. And it's the first time in the Scriptures that we see any type of alignment with God being a king. Now this does not mean that he was not a king. This is the first time that we are using this language and attaching it to his reign. It reads this in 15, 17, and 18. You will bring them in and you will plant them on the mountain of your possessions. Lord, you have prepared a place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Forever, ever. Forever, ever. The Lord reigns. And all the while, we're seeing this tension, this tie, this connection 
between the Lord's reign and something called a sanctuary, a spiritual concept to the reign of God. The problem is, no one in human history has ever loved being told what to do. If you like being told what to do, you are lying to me. None of us like to be told what to do. I've spent much of my life in churches. And there have never been more volatile arguments than when you let a Sunday school teacher in a traditional Baptist church know what you believe that he or she should teach on a Sunday morning. We would like to give you this curriculum. Absolutely not. We're going to make things up on our own. Wonderful. Let's reevaluate. No one ever likes to be told what to do. When you're in Genesis and the book of Exodus, you have a rebellion smoothie concocted of the building of a tower and a Pharaoh being at war with God. The rebellion of, of Cain, may have heard of Cain, leads to Babylon, which is the culmination of the kingdom of this world. So all the while we have God who has a kingdom of the kingdom of God or the kingdom in heaven and and as you look at the story of Cain, as he moves a different direction, he is establishing a kingdom that is of this world. So we do not have alignment from the beginning. As a matter of fact, we have something that is the contrast to alignment. It is out of whack, moving in the wrong direction. The Jewish people, as you move through the story of the nation of Israel... They're looking at the rest of the world and they are begging for a king. We would love to have a king. We want to have a king. In Deuteronomy, we get an allusion to what the king of Israel will be like. This is what God's sanctified king, his royal king, will look like. He won't use Egyptian horses. Now, I'm not sure if you are a pro-Egyptian horse or anti-Egyptian horse person, but when we see that in the Scripture, it is alluding to the idea that he will not function in regard to power in the way that the world functions in regard to power. He will not enslave people, and he will, he will definitely write the Torah out by hand. So, the, the king that God would have for his people, presented to us in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he will not use the powers of this world, he will not enslave people, and he will, he will know the Torah well enough to write it out by hand. Israel's king, in this picture that we've painted of something moving a different direction, is different. Israel is functioning this way. Rather, Israel is functioning this way. It's like I'm doing airport control. Israel is moving in this way, and the king that God would have for them is moving in this way. The people want to have a king, but the king that they want is not like the king that God wants for them. Has that ever been you? Have you ever thought to yourself, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, I'm not wanting what God wants for me. On the backside of a situation, have you ever looked at the, what you've walked through with all of its consequences and all of its repercussions and said, that thing that I just did was not in alignment with God being my king. The people want a king who is just like the king of the rest of the world. 
Samuel deals with this when we get to the book of Samuel. And it says this. They, they tell him we want a king like everybody else. The Egyptians got Pharaoh. The Babylonians got whoever that guy was. We want a king like everyone else. And here are the warnings of Samuel. He will take your children. He will command them to plow and to reap, which means they will be enslaved by him. He will use your children for war. He will make your daughters cooks and bakers. Anytime the people want a king, it is always, always, caps lock, always bad. David was the best king of Israel. He had his issues. Man after God's own heart, for sure. But numerous ways he functioned in opposition to Yahweh. Saul, who was king before David, was a stereotypical villainous jock that you find in every movie that has ever been made about high school. But he'd been given all of the power in the world. With Solomon, these are the three that are aligned and listed as the pretty good ones. With Solomon, when you look at his reign, you notice that Israel functions like Egypt. He is very much pharaohing, which is not a verb, but we'll go with it. Well, how is he pharaohing? Show me that. Solomon had Egyptian horses. Solomon used slave labor. Solomon amassed wealth. Solomon built an army. Solomon was about Solomon. When you get beyond those three, you've got 40 others. Eight of those are seven out of ten. That's how well they were. That was, those were the best of the 40 when they divide the nation. And what we find is that when we are out of alignment with God, we will forget what it means to have a king. When we are out of alignment with God, we're going to forget what it means to have a king. That means that we become Egypt. That we become Canaan. That we become Babylon. That we become all of the places in Scripture where we say, those people are horrific. When we are functioning as if God is not our king, that means we become horrific. Our hearts are distorted and functioning in ways that are, counter, that are in contradiction to who God happens to be. So if that's the kingdom introduced, that God says, this is who I am and I have a forever reign, and the hearts of humanity are saying to him all the while, no, 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 no. What do we do next? We see the kingdom announced. Nation of Israel, they, they go in and out of captivity to the re rebellious foreign nations, sometimes functioning as a rebellious foreign nation. And when you get to the Gospel of Matthew, it says this in chapter 3. John the Baptist is in camel hair and eating bugs. And between his bugs, he makes this announcement. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The coming of the kingdom... J.T. Pennington says, The hallowing of God's name and the doing of, of God's will on earth as in heaven are, the essence of all, are in essence all one. Each looks to history. Each refers to the fitting culmination of God's salvific work. 
The people at this point are ready for a king. They absolutely want a king because what they've got is terrible. But they want a king and they want him to be a variation of the king that we've already been discussing. They are no different than the Israel that Saul dealt with. They want a king to be like all of the other kings. We wouldn't blame them. They're in Roman captivity and they believe that Rome was a curse. There was a guy named Herod who had a dynasty and it was a laughingstock, an absolute mess. And they looked at the world and they said, they have their warriors and we need ours. But Ezekiel's already said that the Messiah, this one who will come to reign, uh, he will shepherd his people. But the hearts of humanity say, I don't want a shepherd. I want someone who goes to war. We see the kingdom of God run through the teachings of Jesus. He talks about it over and over and over. And I tend to think that when Jesus talks about something repetitively, it is obviously a big deal. Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king's reign is in your midst. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, many will come from east to west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. The parable of the wheat and the, and the tares, which talks about the kingdom of heaven, is right there. The, we see the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the, great, of the pearl of great value. I will give you the keys to the kingdom, God, Jesus says in Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 18, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, Jesus says, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about a kingdom. He has walked into a world that is wanting someone to come in with a sword and he has a staff to shepherd people. It doesn't make any sense. If you're a Jewish person at that point in history, this doesn't make sense because you wanted a warrior and you've got a soothsayer. You've got a teacher. But if you look at that teacher... We can guarantee that he won't use Egyptian horses for power. He won't enslave people. He actually sets captives free. The Torah, he won't just write it out. He is the living, breathing Word of God in the flesh. All the while, the people say, this is not what we want. This is not what we would have. This is what not even what we need. If we're going to understand what it means to follow Jesus, that means we understand what it means to align ourselves with Him as King. Followers of Jesus are people who want to make God's heavenly realm to be the reality of earth. We want His kingdom to be present in the here and in the now. When Jesus talks in this prayer about before he ever gets to how we should pray. He points out the hypocrisy in everyone else. The word hypocrite. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. That word is 
don't be like the people who are wearing a mask. Hypocrites don't want to see the kingdom of God come. They just don't. And if our hearts are for warmongering and enslavement of people and the mistreatment of, of those who are far from God, if we are trying to by force commit people, convince people that they should follow the God that we follow, there's no freedom in that. We're just presenting a different captor. If there, so we keep looking and we see that the scriptures talk to us about the kingdom. We will eventually see that the kingdom of God is declared and it is declared in the most subversive, inverted way possible. When Jesus declares the kingdom, the way that the kingdom is declared is a way that we do not understand. Because Jesus will declare and he will show what the kingdom is in death. And Patrick Schreiner, who, who I love, interacted with his book on the kingdom of God recently. He, he says this, If there had been no blood on the tree, there would be no kingdom. Colossians chapter 2, in, in the event that you're wondering if Paul ever talked about kingdoms and such, he does. He, he says this, When you were dead in your trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all your trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he's taken it away by nailing it to the, the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities add, of this world. And he disgraced them publicly. If you're unfamiliar with the history of Rome, they would savagely take over other places. They would go into towns, march through the town, and they would declare to everyone that was watching, we are about to undo your understanding of reign and rule. They would take whoever the king was of this small tribal place, or maybe even a large tribal place, and they would drag him through the town to show the people that he had not surrendered to them. They would do the same with the armies that they, that they wore out. They would do all of these things to say to a world, we reign, we rule, we're in charge, we are now your captors and you better submit to us. We see that Jesus disarms the rules of this world in this passage in the most interesting way. Jesus does not disarm them by defeating them in war. He, def he defeats them by taking death on himself. He disgraces them. When it says that he disgraced them publicly, he made a showing of them, not by pointing out their faults, but by taking the faults of humanity upon himself. Jesus triumphed over them. Jesus did these, in, did these things in ways that are very much unlike the way that we understand our world because Jesus did these things by dying. Our victory is through his death. Outside of the death of Christ, there is no victory for us. The hope of the good news of Jesus is that. I've shared before, we use the most violent language to talk about victories. Crushing and killing and nailing. We even use it in churches. Pastor, you crushed it this morning. Jared, you killed it in those songs. Sarah, you nailed it as you sang that lyric. When Jesus won, he did, the, did those things not by being crushed, killed, and nailed, by being, but he did those things by being crushed, killed, and nailed to a cross. 
Our victory is in his death. The kingdom of God is not high or more important. The kingdom of God is not a high or more important theme for us than the cross, Shriner goes on to say. The realities of the kingdom and the cross are joined forever. To separate those two things is an act of violence. If the kingdom is the goal, then the cross is the means to that goal. We understand the victorious reign of God because of Jesus choosing to be with us to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Matthew 16, Jesus talks about the kingdom. And as he talks about the kingdom, here's what he says to a people that he has died for. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. The kingdom of God is inside out. It's upside down. But it's the way things that are suppo- they are supposed to be. The kingdom of God is the way things should be and the way his followers should live. And if we're going to say that we believe that the name of God should be hallowed, we're going to announce that, we, that you are going to announce and declare that you won't lose sight of that. Because kingdom people should pray for the redemption of the world. We should pray for lost people to be saved. We should pray for the brokenness of the world to be undone. Our hope should be to do whatever we can outside of sin to see those who are far from Jesus draw near to him. Kingdom people should want to see evil structures toppled and defeated. And we should approach those things in the way that Christ has told us to approach those things. If you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. And we are to pray that our current reality is aligning even more today than it did yesterday with with God's forever and now reality. Because the kingdom matters. Because we have a king who matters. The kingdom is not just a place. The kingdom is the reign of a person. And we are saying that we believe that Jesus reigns and rules forevermore. The kingdom fulfilled. We see that in the book of Revelation. Any Revelation heads in the house? Glad you're here. It says this in chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened. And there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes, they're like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe that was dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses putting pure or wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He also tramples the wine presses of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. When you get to Revelation 19, Revelation 20, Revelation chapter 21, you are seeing the forever, the forever fulfilled kingdom of God in place. 
In chapter 20, we see the millennial reign of Christ showed to us where Satan is bound. The great accuser who was against God and at work in, the, in helping human hearts to move in the wrong direction, he is bound. The triumphal fulfillment of God's forever reign is in place. And He dwells with humanity in a new Jerusalem. There's no more sorrow, no more death, no more sin, no more weeping, no more tears. God's kingdom is now fully established, we see in chapter 21. And His purposes are accomplished for eternity. We look at this text, we see Jesus functioning in this way. He wears a robe dipped in blood. There are numerous conversations as to the blood that is dipped in. But what we can know is this, this is a symbol that he has defeated death and the grave and hell and all of the things that make us feel so helpless in this world. Other armies have shed blood to take power. Christ shed his own blood to set people free. Because the shedding of the blood of Christ is the defeat of his enemies. And we can wear white linen because he wore the darkness of death upon himself. The kingdom of God is a reality that we have experienced in the person of Christ. And would we daily look at the way that we live and ask ourselves, am I living as if that kingdom is a reality for me? For me. I want you to bow your heads right now. I want to invite us to consider the good work of Jesus on our behalf and what it means that we have not a kingdom which is a place, but we have a king who is a person and his reign is over everything. And would we ask ourselves, are our prayers aligning with his, what this king would want? Are our desires what this king would want? Are our hopes what this king would want? If you're in the space and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you are unable in and of your own power to overcome sin. You just can't. But Jesus has died so that you could live and he offers you a relationship with himself so that you can be a captive who is set free. And if you would... If you've never placed your faith in Christ, I want to give you some handles. Jesus, I need you to deal with my sin because I can't. You can. Jesus, you are the king and I want to align with your reign and your rule. Jesus, you, you have loved me when I did not deserve it. You died for me when you did not have to. So Jesus, I want to put my trust in you. If you prayed that or something like that, I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room. I would love to talk to you. If you're a believer in this space, would you know that your invitation into the kingdom of God, what has made that possible is what we celebrate each week. In a solemn moment where we look at the, the, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus... We realize that our victory is in that. That we were made whole in his brokenness. That we were given life when he lost it. And as you come to the table today, I would ask for you to just wrestle with, before you eat of the bread or drink of the cup, God, am I wanting your forever reign to be real? How do I align myself with you? If you're not a believer in this space and you don't want to place your faith in Jesus, I, 
I would just ask that you would not take of the bread and take of the cup. Father, we trust you. It's in your name that we pray these things.